Welcome to the Collecting Confidence Podcast, where we'll explore confidence, what it is, why we need it, how we get it, and how we lose it. I'm John Barry. Hello and welcome to Collecting Confidence. This is John Barrett and today we're going to be talking with Nancy Zugsworth. Nancy is the Chief Communicator at Nancy Z Unlimited and has recently launched Ideas by the Hour. We'll be talking with her about starting a new job, a new company, being your own boss. For those of you out there who have gone through that experience, if you want to drop me a note and tell me about your experience with it, I would be willing to share anonymously or on the air afterwards what your experience was. I'll leave the email connection in the show notes. But I went through that myself. I started a company back when my son was born and we wanted my wife to be able to continue working in the workforce. So I would stay home, start a freelance company and do diapers amongst other things, go down to the park with the kid, that kind of fun stuff that you get to do as a parent. So I started looking around for what I could do, and I'd recently come through television and being a writer for commercials and then in advertising, and I thought I should really work towards my strength, towards the things that I know, the things that I've done. So I thought I'd put together some sort of a product, some company, and I met with my friend Morgan. Morgan and I had spent several years at the University of Minnesota and then working for two years with the Vikings football team. And Morgan and I were looking around trying to figure out what needed work. And we met with someone from the University of Minnesota, a recruiter. And the recruiter was quickly able to convince us that people had no idea how to help their children get recruited for college sports. And they would send in a two-and-a-half-hour video showing their kid kicking a game-winning field goal as time expired at the end of two-and-a-half hours. But what coach has two-and-a-half hours to sit around and wait for this field goal? So we set about putting together a workbook and a video to help people get recruited for whatever sport they wanted to. And it was called Make It Happen. And Make It Happen had a nice workbook. Stephen Stokes did some great artwork for it. And Janet Carvinen was the on-air talent for the video portion. She was a great basketball player. We put that together, and it worked. However, there were many, many, many times where we wondered if we had any clue what we were doing, if it was going to work. Confidence was not something that we had an abundance of at the time. One of the reasons I have confidence now is because I went through that experience, and I know if I can make it through that, I can make it through just about any other project there is. It ended up being a little over 2,200 hours of work in a year, which is a little bit more than a full-time job. And at the same time, I was raising a child and trying to be a good spouse and all the other things that you get to do. But it was tough work. That's a difficult thing to start your own company. So let me know if you've started your own company, what your experience was like. For some people, it's easy. For some, it wasn't. To me, it was nice because it played into my strengths of writing and television production and that kind of stuff. But for me, it was also difficult because I didn't understand the marketing. I didn't understand how to get the word out. This was back before the internet, so there was no easy way to let everyone know what you were doing. So there's a lot of groundwork, a lot of going to 
volleyball camps and other sports events and just letting people know that I've got this product and you could probably use it. So it was a tough road, but it did give me confidence in the end that I can pretty much do anything that I need to. Also, it gave me confidence that I had friends who were willing to help me out and I could pull in some chips and get stuff done. And then Morgan and I sold it off and walked away from it. And every once in a while, I look back, I open up the book, I look at Steve Stokes' wonderful artwork, and it's really nice to see and just to think of what we've come through, what we've done. And that helps build confidence, too, to look back at those previous victories. So I would encourage you to do that. Don't live in the past, but just pat yourself on the back for a job well done, something that you did, and move on to the next thing. I don't know if I can do the next thing, but I didn't know if I could do the last thing. And look, I did that, too. So move on to that. And we're going to talk with Nancy about what she's been doing, about her new job, and some of the things that are in her way, and some of the things that are helping her get underway. So stick around, and we'll talk with Nancy. Joining me now is Nancy Zugsworth. Nancy is the founder and chief communicator at Nancy Z Unlimited and Ideas by the Hour. She specializes in helping people find the words and ideas they need to move forward, whether starting a business, writing a book, or trying to get unstuck when they're not sure what the next best move is. Please welcome Nancy Zugsworth. Hi, Nance. Hi, John. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here. This is going to be fun. We're going to talk a lot about a whole bunch of stuff. The very first thing that I ask all of the guests is what does confidence mean to you? I love that question whenever you ask it and what people say has really had an impact on me. So thanks for your great work in this podcast. For me, confidence has been an evolutionary journey of sorts. And I would say that in the last six to nine to 12 months, I've been confronted with that question on probably the deepest level ever. And I would say that I've landed on the essence of confidence to me is a belief that I am enough. When we as human beings can look at who we are and the things that we have been equipped with, with our skills, the talents and information and knowledge we've acquired, that we go into situations believing that I am enough for this present moment. And I've started to actually integrate that statement with my faith. And I believe that I, the best way I say it is I am enough because God is enough. And I believe he created me the way I am, that I am this unique package of humanity, just like you are this unique package of humanity. And we are here because we have a purpose. We are here because we have a unique voice that needs to be heard. And what trips us up oftentimes is when we let the clutter of old messages and old tapes and old experiences that diminished our sense of enoughness that makes us lack confidence in situations. And so when I can show up and recognize that, well, let me tell you a piggyback. So my statement that I've been telling myself and working on ingraining in myself is I am enough because God is enough. And if I am not enough or don't have enough for a given situation, I will be supplied either from within myself, resources that I have that just need to be brought out or 
from without that I'll have people to come along and help me or information that I can acquire to get through that situation that maybe I didn't completely have everything I needed. But I come into each situation believing that I am enough. And that is what gives me the confidence to enter into a lot of new things. That's great. I, it's funny because I've asked this question now 53 times and I get a lot of different answers, probably about 48 different answers. And this is your take on it is a very interesting take because I, I think that's a great take. I tragically don't live my life that way because I never think it's enough. I always, I'm a bit of a pack rat, nothing in moderation. And so I, I don't ever settle for what I have. It's like, I must go do more. I must sign up for more stuff. I must get a new, I got to take up tap dancing. I got to do more. I got And it's, I don't know if it's a fear of missing out or that just wanting to be the king of jack of all trades sort of a thing. But I really do think that there's something nice about being able to sit back and say, I'm enough the way I am. And that is great. That is fantastic. My research team says that the word that might have best described you in your youth is precocious. Have you always been a confident, outgoing person or are you the shy, sit in the corner, don't talk to me person? Oh, wow. I feel so awkward answering that. No, <laughs> precocious probably works. I have never, to my knowledge, been described as shy. I am an extrovert of extroverts, very people-centered, very energized by interacting with people, never smart enough to really have hesitation to get to know people. In the last 10 to 15 years, I've learned an awful lot about my strengths in taking instruments like the Clifton StrengthsFinder 2.0, and my top strength is WOO. It stands W-O-O, which stands for winning others over. And I remember learning that and being like having this aha moment, like that explains so much about me. That explains why as a little girl, I would just walk down the sidewalk and look at everybody and go, hi, hi, hi. You know, there's just like, there's no such thing as a stranger. It's just friends I haven't met yet. And I'm the kind of person who I'll say, oh, I just met this person today and we're friends. And I've had people look at me and say, what do you mean you just met them and you're friends? You can't become friends like that. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. I thought I could become friends right away. It explains why I my whole life long, I love to bake and I will bake for people at any opportunity. When I was dating a guy in high school, I baked brownies for the swim team. Every time they had a meet, I baked brownies for coworkers and cakes and cookies and everybody loved it. I'm like, why did I do that? I couldn't even explain it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, winning others over. I like to do that. But it's very interesting when you pair that natural tendency of winning others over with this parallel reality that sometimes deep down inside and sometimes really just almost on the periphery of my vision is this sense of not enough. And there were absolutely times that I could say, yes, that I was operating in my strength, but I was also doing it because I wanted to be sure they liked me. I wanted to be sure that nobody thought ill of me. And like anything, I always like the phrase that any strength, if overextended, can become a weakness. And I think that my sense of not enough that I have harbored for much of my life and this desire to win others over and you know be the center of attention or be liked or whatever are pretty hand in glove. And it takes pretty conscious work on my mindset to kind of keep each of them in check. 
as you were growing up in your formative years, did you have a person that you looked at and thought that person's really confident or was, was confidence just not something you worried about or cared about? Growing up, I don't think that I was forced to ever embrace or think deeply about it because my natural personality put me in situations where I was popular relatively. I was in a small elementary school and I had friends. I was friends with everybody in the class, but I never sensed that the girls didn't want to be my friend. I didn't have some of those very hard experiences that people have when they're rejected by people. And so I looked, I was the youngest of three girls. And so my, you know, early idols were my sisters, whatever my sisters did, I wanted to do. And I wanted my sisters to like me. And if they brought a friend home, I wanted their friend to be my friend. And when they got boyfriends, I wanted to have a boyfriend just like they did, you know, and all this goofy stuff that little sisters looked up to. I looked up to my mom as a, a confident woman. I grew up in an era where most moms were stay at home. But when I was three and a half, my mom went to work full time. She was someone who desired to have that fulfillment of an outside career. And I remember writing an essay in eighth grade about how proud I was to have a working mom in the independence that I gained by having her work as early as probably second well, third grade for sure. I came home after school and was just there with one, one or two of my older sisters and we were on our own and had to get our own snacks and do those things. And I think that some of those experiences actually probably contributed to my independence and confidence because mom wasn't there to do everything for me. As you got older and got into the workforce, I just recently read a book called Peak Perspective and it was about mentoring. I was wondering if you ever had a mentor. That is a great question. I know the author of that book quite well. And the ironic part of my husband's journey in writing that book is that I helped him edit it and I've read it and I've seen him live it out, but I haven't historically had a mentor. I have people in my present moment that I'll seek them out for advice and things like that. But a person that I've defined as a clear mentor, I haven't. And so since Jim wrote the book, I have actually been working on developing a personal board of directors. And so I have added a couple people to my life that are go-tos. But interestingly, since I left the workforce last May and went out on my own to be a freelance communicator and now starting a new business, I've realized more than ever my need to have those kinds of voices in my life. And so I have sought out mentorship in actually a paid mentorship group. It was important enough to me to surround myself, not just with an individual, but with people who had similar goals, similar challenges, who could uphold one another, mastermind with each other. And that's been a very important part of my development as I've been learning how to be a business owner after a lifetime of always being an employee. As an employee, let's go back to the years that you were working for someone else, but you needed to have confidence in your skills to do your job. Tell me a little bit about how confidence or lack of confidence impacted your work on a, just on a day-to-day basis. I have looked back on my career from time to time and realized that I didn't show up ready, fully ready in terms of training for any job that I ever had. And I think that that it's important, especially I think of young people, they feel really anxious. I've worked in higher education for 16 years. And one of the things that you see really consistently in college students is they worry quite a bit about how am I going to know what to do on a job? And is my education going to prepare me adequately? 
And I tell students for the most part that your goal in college more than anything is to learn to be a good learner. Because if I think of even in the last five years, the number of jobs that exist that never existed before, those students who between their freshman and senior year, there has been thousands upon thousands of new jobs that have been created even in those four years. So no university, no educational system is going to be able to keep up with that explosion of knowledge and information and how it's impacting and changing jobs. But if we train ourselves to be learners, that's the key. And so in terms of how I showed up for my jobs, I always show up enthusiastically no matter what. And I think that a lot of people will perceive you as confident just because you're you're not shy. We've talked about that a little bit, but I've learned to say yes to most requests and then go figure out how to do it. I'm kind of a classic, like say yes, make the commitment and then figure out how to do it. Say, yeah, I can do that and go, oh my goodness, what have I done? Or simply I'm asked to do something and we figure it out as a team. So my my brief career history is I started out in sales right out of college. I was a speech communication major. I used to say, oh, what, you know, people say, well, what can you do with speech communication? Oh, what can't you do? I can communicate effectively and I've learned how to learn. And then it's graduation is coming and I'm sitting there going, I don't know what I can do with this degree. And of course, everybody says, oh, you're so outgoing. You'd be good in sales. Like, oh, okay. I'll try sales. I tried sales. And for me personally, I think it didn't mesh well with my sense of not enough and my inability to close a sale. I didn't want to get to that moment of no. And so I kind of hemmed and hawed. And so that lasted about a year. My second job had a little sales component and it ended up that the company who hired me threw in the towel on what they'd hired me to sell. It was kind of a franchise thing, but they liked me. And so they made up a job for me. And so suddenly I'm doing HR interviews and or employee orientations and I'm planning company events. And then I was hired to be in training and development and teach people. And I had to go and get training on how to train the classes that I would be facilitating, but I was equipped with the tools and the resources. And I, it's just made its way along to always find my way to know enough. And then I bring ideas and I always, I'm the kind of person I'll always have new ideas about how to do something better or different. I'm not afraid to share those. And there you go. So I guess I showed up relatively confident and I have, I don't totally like fake it till you make it, but I have been willing to deal with the discomfort of not knowing until I do. I have a friend in HR and it, it turns out if you don't have the skills and the experience to do the job, <laughs> then they're not going to hire you. But if you do, then you're overqualified. So that was always very a, a fun place to be in. And I do know that the HR, I really should probably just do a couple of shows with HR people and talk about the confidence of people who come in for an interview. And some of them are incredibly overconfident. Some of them sweat profusely because they're so not confident. Have you seen other people at work and and wondered mm. how can they be that not confident? Is it, have, you, have you ever seen somebody like that? Is there anything that can be done to help a coworker who's not confident? That is a great question. And absolutely, yes. Over the years of my career, you, you definitely meet people who have a much less evolved sense of confidence 
in their actions. And again, what feeds that can be the, the system they're in. I mean, a lot of management and leadership systems in organizations don't breed that confidence. You know, how, how do we believe we're confident when a manager second guesses everything we do or has to have us report every movement we make? That I generally find that autonomy as an employee breeds confidence. But if you've never had the opportunity to make those decisions and you've always been told, do this, then I'll tell you what to do next, do this, then I'll tell you what to do next. But if it's on a personal, interpersonal level, I think there's always value in helping another person increase in confidence. And it it can be done very organically and very naturally if you truly are coming from a position of caring. And it's like, it's not unlike your children. Do you think our kids grow more when we are quick to point out all the things they do wrong? Or do they grow better if we reinforce the things they do right? That's the whole premise behind the StrengthsFinder inventory. The Gallup organization was really noticed that, you know, when people go to a self-help section, for example, in a bookstore, most of us look for a book that's going to be about overcoming a perceived weakness. And so we're spending this time and energy in this case, I'm trying to become more confident. And so I'm going to go buy a book about how to become more confident. Well, what if we started to say, set aside this concept of confidence and just let's start to talk about you. Let's look at you and your strengths. And, and do you notice in the people you see who seem to lack confidence that they do actually do certain things well? It might be attention to detail. It might be punctuality. It might be that they're the one in the room that always notices when someone's not emotionally on. And for you to just start to notice that. And just like you will with your kids to say, John, you know, I don't tell you this very often, but when we're in team meetings, I really appreciate the thoughtful way that you wait till everybody's had a turn to talk, but you always share something and it's always wise. And I can just tell you really are good at synthesizing and processing information. And you just start to give specific behavioral feedback to people. And I think that that can go a tremendous distance in helping people start to build their own confidence. And I know that you were talking about surrounding yourself with other people, mentor group and things like that. And I do think that the people that are around us encourage us or tear us down. And I think social media is one of those places where if you want to get torn down, you can, but other groups such as, uh, for example, Toastmasters is a place that helps lift you up. And I think for a lot of people, it's really important that they look at where are they getting their feedback from and what kind of feedback is it? Because it's not always good and it's not always helpful. And you might want to readjust what you're listening to or where you're going or who you're talking to, whom you're talking to. Uh, do you have any good or bad feelings towards the things that go on in social media? Good or bad feelings. I've described for years that I have a love-hate relationship with social media. Backstory, I'm so communication-oriented. Like When I was a little girl, I was a proliferate letter writer. So I grew up in an era long before social media, before email, when long distance phone calls were expensive to grandma. So we wrote letters and I learned early on that when I wrote a letter, I usually got a letter back and I loved getting mail. I, I would fight anybody in my family to be the one to go to the mailbox and see if I got a letter. And I found that same energy came when email came on the scene and I would be like looking multiple times a day at my emails. And I still do that. And I have 
so many emails now. I don't have the same joy. I don't think that I did in the early days when you got emails from people that you knew versus everybody in the world that wants to sell you something. Social media is a lot like that. The feedback, like if I have made a post, I do, what did, is there engagement? Is there something to be said? So I would say that for, I first got a social media account in 2006. So I consider myself to be a relatively early adopter. Facebook was pretty young. I got an account because one of my children wanted to have an account. I wanted to see what it's about. So I joined to kind of watch what he was doing. And suddenly I'm getting these friend requests. What's this? And all of a sudden you have another friend and another friend. And this person you knew from one time you met them at a networking event three years ago says, let's be friends. And you're like, uh, okay. And suddenly you're just watching and, and, and I used social media for many years, almost voyeuristically, partly because I was overwhelmed by the amount of potential for engagement. I didn't know where to draw the line. So I consumed it and I did share things, but I wasn't constantly on it. And fast forward to 2021 and I'm launching a business. Well, do you know how you market your business when you're independent contractor in 2021? You use social media. The group that I'm part of is a heavily marketing centric group with a lot of social media managers. So I'm kind of in the deep end of this world where I'm not using it to the degree that a lot of people are, but it's like all around me. But what the shift has been for me is actually using it for engagement. Whereas before I was more like scroll, scroll, see what somebody says. And I I talk myself out of, ah, they don't need to hear from my comment or I don't need to comment on what they had for dinner, you know, which, you know, we joke that was what the post used to be. And so now though, I've found that when you are intentional with social media and you seek out the people who are like-minded, shared interests, maybe in my case, potential people that I could serve through what I do and you engage with them, Um, actual relationships can form. I have had Zoom coffee chats with people that I met on TikTok, which just cracks me up. I never would have thought that, but all it takes is a direct message from somebody saying, Hey, I really liked what you posted. And you thought that was interesting. And you start a conversation just like you would in real life, which I had never done that with social media. So my love hate is shifting to more love for what of the best it can be, but my hate in what it is at its worst, which is people being very vicious with one another, people shouting essentially without reason. And quite frankly, the, what you would call trolls, people who are on social media for the express purpose of pushing buttons. And so I see that for me, that works. And I've had to work hard to have this balanced perspective. What scares me about social media is I know not everybody has given that thought to it or had the ability to, and especially younger people who don't have the filters and the discernment to be able to go, that person is not someone that I would interact with in any way, shape or form in real life. I don't have to give credence to the awful thing that they said, and I can dismiss it but a lot of people can't do that. And that's where it becomes kind of hurtful and harmful. And going back to what you had said earlier, I'm kind of in the same boat as you with, I want everyone to like me. And there's no pleasing everyone. And on social media, there's no pleasing probably most of the people out there. But it is an interesting thing. A lot of times we'll look at other people and we assume that they are happier. We assume that they are wealthier. We assume that they are confident, for example. And it turns out they're not. 
But we don't know that because people are only seeing that one side of stuff. Let me go back to, you were talking about editing and writing and things like that. And I know that that's one of the things that you're doing here. I have a couple of very close friends who are editors and writers and English majors. And the most useful thing that I ever heard from them is if you get stuck on a phrase, write around it, find a different way to say it rather than struggle with making that work, just rewrite the whole thing, come at it from a different point of view so that you're not sitting there looking at this weakness of, I don't know how to say this, go back and make it be a strength, say it a different way. I think the same can be said for what we're doing, how we're learning things in life. If there's something that you are good at, like you're good at meeting people, great, but maybe you're not so good at auto mechanics. So if something goes wrong with the car, you don't go out there and try to watch a YouTube video and try to do it yourself. You have somebody else do it because you're just, you're not skilled in it. You're not confident in it and we'll throw money at that one. But if it's meeting people, if it's interacting relationships, that's where your strong suit is. And so I think a lot of people, and I'll throw myself under the bus for this one, want to be the jack of all trades. They want to be good at everything because what they see is people being good at stuff because everybody's posting the one thing that they're good at online. And I see the conglomerate of everybody's good at something. I'm not good at anything. I'm okay at everything. But talk to me a little bit about that working towards your strengths and avoiding your weaknesses. When you have the luxury to only operate in your strengths, I think it's awesome and smart and wise. I think most of us, whether it's in a job situation or whether we're business owners, have to take the mud with the garden or whatever you want to, <laughs> whatever uh, analogy you, you want to say is that I, I mean, I'll just case in point, I left my job last May. I was just feeling this. I liked what I did. I had almost what I'd call my dream job. It used most of my skill sets that I really like to employ, but at the stage of life, I wanted a little more freedom and independence. I also had served kind of as a backgrounder. You know, I wrote a lot of words that were rarely attributed to me. I, I wrote organizational communication. I would write emails that were phenomenal, but they didn't have my name on them or, you know, whatever it was. And I felt that to really have an opportunity in this world to have my voice be out there, I, I needed to do that on my own. And yet I have been faced with more moments of insecurity and more moments of just a sense that I don't even know what I'm even close to doing. And yet you just have to start again. I know now you're in a situation where you can be your own boss and you can do your own stuff. And so you're able to decide I'm going to work towards my strengths, which is helping people writing, coming up with ideas and stuff. And uh, tell me a little bit about that. How are you, how are you doing that? How, how is that facilitated and, and how is that going? Well, thanks for that invitation. That's actually a really good example to, to tell you. So I left thinking, well, I'm going to continue. I'm going to be a freelance writer. I'm going to be a communications consultant because I do those things well. And yet I found pretty quickly as I started to take on a writing job here and there, and I got an opportunity to work with an organization and kind of do an assessment of this communication package they used with their constituents. I recognized that I was sort of recreating my job and not, and being just being my boss. The only different, I was doing the same things, just that I was the boss. And I thought, I don't think I want to be on deadline every day 
and all these every week having, I got to get another piece of content out. I got another, I got to write another thing. And, and so then I'm suddenly confronted. It's like, okay, great. Well, you left your job and you need to make money. And if you're not going to want that be your primary way to make money, what is it? And so I returned to my strengths when I, so I told you my top strength is woo. My other strengths in this realm are communication there's something called activator, which is the ability to you know, get things in motion, positivity. And then the last strength out of the top five of mine is ideation. And ideation in the, in the Gallup tool is just basically the ability to generate ideas, to freely interact with other people, to look creatively at situations. And I, I thought to myself, you know, when I took this assessment in 2008, I used to joke with people and say, you know what my dream job would be? My dream job would be to sit in a room with a giant whiteboard and have people come to me and say, Nancy, I need an idea. And that I, we could just brainstorm together and I'd fill the whiteboard and I'd say, there, there's some ideas, go. And then I would leave with nothing on my to-do list. <laughs> And they had all the work because <laughs> in the corporate world or the business world, the organizational world, I always found that if you had too many ideas, they're like, great idea, go do it. It's like, no, 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 you don't get this. I have the ideas. I don't want to implement them. So I started, I thought to myself, okay, so I, one time in my life said that would be my dream job. It's 2022. We have this thing called zoom. So I don't have a room with a big whiteboard, but would it be possible for me to sit with people one-on-one -on -one and brainstorm with them when they're stuck, brainstorm solutions to a communication challenge, brainstorm names for a business, brainstorm a place that they're just an idea person too. And they have so many ideas, they can't sift through them. But if they had an idea partner that we could kind of extract them and look at them objectively or from those different angles, like you talked about. And I decided to see if I could make that concept into a business. And so leaning into my strengths, I'm launching a business called Ideas by the Hour, which is an on-demand, on-call ideation service. It's a little different than coaching. Everybody goes, so you're coaching, right? And I like, not really, because to me, a coach comes alongside you and you practice and you implement, and then you tweak, and then you practice and you implement, and you kind of go down a path. Uh, consulting is a little more coming to an organization. Here's the lay of the land. Here's you know, things I recommend that you do. I'm really putting this out there as like this spark plug where the you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, maybe a business owner in the C-suite. And it's actually lonely because you just don't have that good sounding board for this, the, the fresh ideas. You want them to be a little more developed before you release them into your organization. I love talking about any subject. I, I'm a little bit like you, John, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of few, but I have enough insight from my years of experience that I know a little bit about enough to be dangerous or maybe helpful. <laughs> I don't know which. And so my hope is that I'll sit with people and help them kind of break free from that place of stuck that I can help them identify some next action steps. I can help them prioritize the quality or value of their ideas. And I jokingly say that what you get from that meeting is 100% yours. We could come up with an, a million dollar idea for you to go out and implement. And that's all you have to pay the flat fee to meet with me and it's yours forever. And then I'm super well connected that I can connect people to coaches if that's where they're at and they need some. I can connect people to genius marketers. I can connect people to people with a lot of skill sets. And so the connector part of me fits in this model as well. So this that's my latest example of trying to lean into my strengths, but I'll add the caveat. 
that when you do that, you come face to face in a 10x magnifying mirror with every weakness, you know, every fear, my own lack of self-discipline, my own sense of not enough that I'm still working on powering through. And so it's been quite an up and down journey just to get to the point of getting ready to launch. I've had the uh, good fortune when I was in advertising to be brought in on a couple of thought panels where we were going to come up. One, one was to come up with a name for a computer and it was the first computer that was going to be colored. All of them were kind of an off coffee looking color back in the 70s and 80s. And, and this was going to be an all black body for a computer, the first colored body. So we sat around for three days and came up with all these wonderful panther and ivory and just any anything that was the same or the opposite of whatever it was. And at the end, the client named it Dolores after his daughter. So three days of creativity, but we had generated about 450 possible words and Dolores ended up being the winner. And then the other one we did was for a dog food and we came at it and it was kind of fun because we had a bunch of like-minded people in the room thinking of creative things like you, you would be doing. And in the end, I think they named it Imes or something like that, that just to me made no sense. So I don't, my success ratio is not so good with clients, but it was interesting because we did a couple of icebreakers as a group to get us into that mindset of thinking and being creative and stuff. And talk to me a little bit just about in order to be confident in your ideation, talk to me about the mindset of creativity and your goals of success. What a great question. And it's so funny you should ask. I just last week gave a talk for an organization that I called Discovering the Genius in the Mirror. And the premise behind that is that because of my belief that each of us comes with a purpose, we have giftings and talents. And our job is to cultivate those talents that we bring to the table. It's not to spend our life looking at each other and saying, I wish I had your talents or boy, you have good ideas. I don't have good ideas. I think everybody has the potential to have great ideas if we focus them in the areas of our whole package of strengths and, and how we're equipped. And so for this talk, I discovered a wonderful book that I've been commending to people. It's John Cleese's book, Creativity, a short and cheerful guide. And so between reading this, it took me about half an hour to read it. If you're a slow reader, it wouldn't take you more than an hour, I'm sure. It was just a wonderful resource. And I also got some great tips by looking at some YouTube videos. John Cleese has run a training company since the 1980s because he became, as a, com a famous comedian, many people in your audience may know him from the Monty Python series and Faulty Towers. He's the author director of A Fish Called Wanda, his, which he claims is his only award-winning film, I believe, but wildly creative, zany, humorist, but he became fascinated with the creative process. In his own transition, he started his academic career as a scientist. And then he hung out with some theater people like John Barrett <laughs> and became much more intrigued with the, the performing arts and his career path. But John Cleese talks about, uh, we operate in two modes. We He calls them real simple terms, open and closed. And most of us operate in our work world in the closed mode. Closed is task, functional, 
operations. I've got to-dos list. I've got to do this. I got to get this done, this done, this done. And that mindset does not lend itself to our greatest creativity. So he talks about what you want to do when you have a big problem to solve, when you have new ideas that you need, you've got to get yourself into open mode. And open mode is the one that opens the path to your subconscious mind where there's a lot of ideas lurking and he actually gives a really specific structure for integrating the open mode. Would you like me to tell you about it? Yes, please. <laughs> so I've even memorized the five steps and I'll just go them briefly. I'm going to be ready. I, I'm, they're talked about. I can't remember whether they were most articulately laid out in the book or on that talk that I saw. But the first thing is that you need to do is create space for it. You need to say you can't be in the midst of your sea of busy cubicles or in the middle of the living room with all your children running around. That is typically not going to be the, the space. And he kept using the word oasis. However small, where can you go that you can know you can be distraction free for a certain amount of time? And the second thing is time that you put a time limit on it. it most of us don't have the ability just like today is my creative day. I'm spending eight hours just thinking, you know, very, that's a luxury most of us don't have. But if we develop the discipline of setting aside this creative time, our mind and our, our being will get used to that and go, oh, this is my creative time. And so that time structure, he recommends about 90 minutes saying that the first 15 to 30 is going to be you whipping your ideas that are you know, your logical closed brain is going to want to use that quiet time to say, oh, you remember you got to, you forgot to switch the laundry loads. Oh, you got to remember to get pickles for the hamburgers, whatever it is. You shut that down, but then you really focus on this creativity. The other time, the third element is also time. But in this realm, he says, when you have an important decision to make, allow yourself the creativity all the way until decision day. That sometimes people are like, oh, we just, I just want to get this decision out of the way. I just want to make it. So you grab the first sort of decent idea and run with it. Whereas if you'd allowed yourself a few more days till that actual deadline and you had done this creative process, your subconscious is going to continue to work on it long after that 90 minutes is over. And you'll have a lot higher number of solutions to choose from. So the other two elements mm -hmm. are, I think, I think those are the core of this process. And then the other two elements were confidence, believe it or not. And the, the way he expressed nice. that is the confidence to live with the tension of not having decided yet. It, having the tension of two opposing ideas that you are wrestling with and not feeling you have to too quickly force that. So some of that second, third uh, time element is the confidence. And then humor is one that is highly encouraged. He cited a study by behavioral scientist in the early, in the sixties who studied architects. He wanted to find out what was this differential of the creative versus the not creative architect. And the, the word play came out that if you can cultivate your ability to play, to, to just enjoy doing something for the sake of doing it, to just create in your oasis, this space where you, you get outlandish with your ideas or you have tactile things that are playful. Sometimes people recommend watching humorous things, getting yourself to laugh at the beginning of this creative session. And those kinds of things will release that creativity in you more effectively. Yeah. I remember when we were doing the, one of the naming exercises in order to get us into a creative mode, they had a couple of stories of people that had thought outside of the box. And I'm sure you've heard these stories, but there was a university that wanted sidewalks put in from building to building. And what the person did was they put down grass and let the students walk on it to see where the students walked. And 
based on where the grass was worn. They said, that's where the sidewalk should go because that's where they're actually needing to go. And we read a couple of stories about that just to get us in the mindset of thinking outside the box and doing something different. And I think that is a really important thing to be aware of that inner voice and that allowing ourselves to do things a different way rather than having to do it the way we've always been told to do it. And, and we, we often, I joked on, on a couple of podcasts that, you know, we spend the first two years teaching the kids to walk and to talk and the next 18 to shut up and sit down. And so we get that stifling all of our life from teachers and coaches. And it's sometimes not healthy for the creative process because people expect you to do something a certain way. There's a great song by Harry Chapin and it's talking about flowers and red flowers are red, green flowers are green. There's no way, no need to paint flowers any other way than the way they always have been seen. And the teacher stifles this kid who was painting with all these different colors. And I think there's some truth to that, that we are definitely, mm, a lot of it is adults, cat herding the children sort of thing, trying to get them to the finish line together and safely. But I do think that in the work environment, there's a lot of us that are still looking at that. And so how do you get past that? Uh, or how do you get to that point of creativity? Is there any trick that can help you become more creative or help you think in a more creative manner? Well, I think you mentioned the work environment and the school environment can be stifling and, and you have to, we can't always change that environment. We don't typically in our jobs have the ability to say, I'm here now and I want this culture to be different. And so it starts with the mirror, you know, the talk that I gave, the genius in the mirror starts with you, that you start to influence the world around you so that if your work environment doesn't build in a way to have these creative spaces, it doesn't mean that you can't go home and say, I have this big problem at work and I'm going to create this space and this process for me so that I can at least come back to work and bring what I know is the best solution. I think Again, kids don't have the ability to influence that highly, but as parents, we can encourage our children's creativity. If their school environment isn't one that we can control, we can always let our kids know that creativity is welcome at home. And we have to analyze and look in our own hearts and like, why do I stifle creativity? I'll tell you as a mom, why I stifle creativity? Because I hate work. I hate cleaning up. And, you know, my rear view mirror as a mom, if I could go back and let my kids make more messes, I would totally do it. The number of times we didn't do something that would have been super, super fun because I didn't want to have to clean up the mess afterwards is sadly too much to count. I think it just starts with a, a desire for creativity. It starts with empowering yourself to enter the creative process, to recognize when you're, you're not. I loved one of the stories that John Cleese told was actually about Alfred Hitchcock. One of his screenwriters was recounting how they would be in these screenwriting mirrors with this. Alfred Hitchcock was a genius screenplay writer, producer, director, and they would there would be this tension and they were just the thing, the tension would rise. And out of the blue, Alfred Hitchcock would start to just tell a story that had nothing to do with what they were talking about. And the screenwriter recounting this story said, and at first we became so angry. Why is he wasting our time with this? But then they started to realize that he needed to release 
them from that angst they were having. And he used to, he literally would say to them, we're pressing, we're pressing, we're working too hard. And he then would say, let it go. It will come. And inevitably then it did the solution they were looking for. So I think it's training ourselves to recognize when we're pressing, when we're pressing and we're blocking our own creativity, our own ideas, and then creating this atmosphere where first our personal creativity then thrive. And then once we become empowered to do that, we can be contributors to the environments we're in to invite others into that kind of creative freedom that we're developing for ourselves. Well, if people wanted to connect with you or to uh, hire you for an idea, what? how do they connect with you? The best way to reach me is through my website, which is really easy to remember, even though Zug's word is a hard name. My website is nancyz.com. So just a simple nancyz.com takes you to a website that tells my services. It'll have links to book an idea session or just find out more and reach out for a discovery call. I'd love to meet with people just ever to chat. I'm always happy to spark an idea here and there. And if someone knows they're ready to roll up their sleeves and get into that creative oasis with someone who will encourage them and spark some ideas of their own and pull their ideas out of their head, I would love to meet with them. Excellent. Well, before we leave, is there a tip that you can give people who are trying to gain or maintain confidence? I would say the practice of looking in the mirror every day and saying three words, I am enough and working on saying that till you say it and believe it, and then start receiving the excitement of your expanded willingness to try new things and go more confidently into your activities. So that's my message because you are enough. Thank you. Well, I feel like after all the eating from being home with COVID, I'm more than enough. And that's my problem. So I have to work on that when the warm weather finally shows up in Minnesota here. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thanks, John. It was my pleasure. It's really a great thing you're doing here. And I'm very honored to be on your podcast. Well, you know, my very first guest was a man named Jim Zugschwert, and I feel like I'm honored now to have bookended with the Zugschwert family here. This is great. So I'll have to see if Jane is available. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you very, very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Today's tip of the day is to work towards your strengths. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can get more information about confidence and check out the merchandise store on the website at collectingconfidence.com. If you like what you heard, subscribe and pass the link along to a friend who needs to collect confidence. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. It's one of the only ways to know if I'm doing a good job. Another way to let me know is to go to the support page. Consider making a small monthly pledge. A pledge as small as the cost of a cup of coffee each month goes a long way to keep the episodes and the information coming your way. The last way to let me know what you think is to drop by our Facebook page or send me an email at john at collectingconfidence.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'd love to help you. Now let's go collect confidence.